Um, for those of you whom I do not know, I'm Raina Barker. I'm our Minister of Spiritual Formation here at FCC. And it's been a good three years, I think, since I've been before you to preach. So I'm excited to bring this message from parts of Revelation this morning. Really, though, what we're doing this morning is we're going to be talking about what it means to be a people who receive revelation. And I believe Mike, a couple weeks ago when he first started Revelation, gave us the definition of revelation. And what that is, the Greek is apocalypsis, which we get our English word apocalypse from, right? And so when we think of apocalypse, though, in our modern movies and entertainment, we think fire, we think destruction. And really the word apocalypse simply means revelation, or disclosure. And so it's interesting how our um, entertainment has taken it in a whole different direction, or at least left out a large part of what it means to have something revealed. What is revelation? It's simply the disclosure of something hidden. It's something that gives light, gives us knowledge, gives us additional insight into spiritual truth. It does refer to the second coming of Christ. And so today we want to talk about what it means to be a people who receive revelation, who receive further disclosure, a people group. I'm not talking about a person. We're not going to be talking about the individual as much today, as much as being a people group, a nation, a collective identity as God's people. And so I want you to think about that as a collective today, not just as me or as you but as one, we are the unified body of Christ. And so the question we're going to address today is, how do we become a people who can be entrusted with disclosure and revelation from God? Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just descend on us today, that you would fill us, that you would pour yourself afresh on us this morning. May your word come alive, may your word penetrate our hearts, And may we be able to see each other as a people who receive revelation. In the power and name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Revelation some today. We're going to be all over the place today. So let's start by reading again Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So one of the first things that I noticed as I started reading Revelation this summer was that a people is made, a collective people is made by gathering together, And then in our context, through experiencing the word of God together. And my Sunday school class will definitely identify with what we're about to say because we've already been talking about it for two weeks. What we've been talking about is this occurrence here in verse three. It says there is a special blessing for those who read aloud the words of the prophecy and that there is a blessing when we hear it and when we keep it. And so... I challenged my Sunday school class, and we are going to be challenging our entire congregation. Mike is going to continue with this, 
to read aloud the book of Revelation. We want to test and see what this blessing is all about in verse three. I just read a book called The Enchanted Hour by a Wall Street Journal columnist named Megan Cox Gurdon. And in this book, The Enchanted Hour, she has totally convinced me of the value of reading out loud. With your children in particular, the book was about, but she also has many chapters, and one of which deals with how valuable it is to read out loud to the elderly. And she also even makes a case for the value of reading out loud to your pets and to um, wounded and rescue animals. And I thought it was a really, really fascinating conversation. And so as I was reading that, and then as I was reading Revelation and how it talks about there being a special blessing when we read aloud, it's like, oh, we're going to read the book of Revelation out loud. So like I said, this is, Mike is 100% on board with this. He's going to be challenging you to do the same. So we're going to read the book of Revelation out loud. We're challenging you to do so. Every day, we encourage you to read one chapter of Revelation out loud. And there is, I think, a significance about reading it out loud. It gets in us more. We get to know it better. We get to know the God of the word better when it's coming out, when we're hearing it. And what happens if you miss a day If you skip one day of reading Revelation, you have to start over. (laughs) So you get through Revelation chapter 10, and then you skip a day. Oh, okay, back to Revelation 1. Because here's the thing, we have 30 weeks in Revelation, 30 times 7, 210. We have 210 days to read 22 chapters. And so, and I think there is a special blessing too in just, oops, sorry, skipped a day, gotta start over because the more and more we read it, the better we get at it, the more we know God, the more we know his word. And I think there's something also very valuable about the reading aloud part. We're more present in the moment. It has more of our open-hearted, full attention when it comes out. And then there's an additional thing. If you want to do this with someone, with someone, period, there can be a built shared experience in that. If you're reading with your kids or your spouse or walking down the street and reading it out loud and seeing who comes up and joins you. That could be a little extreme, but hey, you know. Um, And then what's happening too, as we, the people of God, of the local church here at First Christian, we are building a shared experience together that builds us up as the people of God. So, read one chapter of Revelation out loud every day for the next 30 weeks. And we'll see what happens to us. I'm excited to see what that blessing may entail for the people of God in this place. And then when we're the people who hear it and keep it, The NIV renders that phrase, keep it, as take to heart. When we take to heart what is written, I believe it changes us, that Christ changes us when our hearts are fully engaged with the word. So what are we gonna do? Read. Good, thank you. Right, and we'll be following up too to see what kind of things start happening as we're reading out loud.
Right, we're gonna skip to verse nine in Revelation chapter one now. This technology is working, the communication. I'm so excited because that's the part I was nervous about. (laughs) We want to talk now about what qualifies us to receive revelation. What makes us a people group that can be trusted with revelation from God? I'd like to argue that there's nothing externally that qualifies us. It's not knowledge. It's not depth in our spiritual walk. It's not how long we've been a Christian. It's not if we have a special degree after our names. It's not any of that external thing. thing. It's not any of those external things. We see that John received revelation. In John's qualification for that, what he is called in scripture is the beloved disciple. We can identify as beloved disciples, can't we? We are loved by a God that loves us. We are disciples. We are learners. We are together beloved disciples. That's what qualifies us. And so we're going to look at other things that John saw in himself and how he positioned himself that qualified him as someone that received revelation. Let's read verse 9 out loud together. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Reading aloud together. There is a blessing. I believe it. So so we see here that John not only identified as John the individual, but also as the collective identity of the church. He first says, I, John, your brother. He is our brother. We are brothers and sisters of the same father in heaven. And so if we think about what it really means to be a brother or a sister or a sibling, just like in our families of origin, siblings share their history, they share traditions, they share medical conditions. We fight, we love, we work out our differences, we share the workload. We share times of leisure. And so here, if we bring that into the church, when we are brothers and sisters together, we are unified by our shared experience of Jesus as our Lord, as our friend. And so we have this collective identity in addition to our individual identities and our family of origin identities. It doesn't mean that we give up our individual identities, just that we also have this identity as the people of God, the church. The next phrase John uses here is partner. He says, I am your brother and I am your partner. That word is is two Greek words put together. And I'm a big word study person. I love studying the meanings behind different biblical words and whatnot. So of course I go to study and I find out that the prefix on this word is sug, S-Y-G. And it means to be with, to have something held together denotes union. And it, but the thing about it is, and this was interesting as I read this definition, it's not the idea of sitting beside. It's not somebody sitting beside me. It is um, being a partner, it's being partakers together. It is being of each other. It's more like being stacked together rather than sitting side by side. I thought that was interesting. And then when it's used in writing, this word, partner in this case, 
It implies completeness. So John is saying, when we are partners in the kingdom, in the tribulation, we are complete. So could we also say that we are incomplete without each other? A collective identity together makes us a people who can receive revelation. And then we're gonna talk about the position that John saw himself in. He says we are brothers and partners in the tribulation and in the kingdom. So I want to talk about this word tribulation. In this most relevant context right here in Revelation, tribulation is referring to most likely the persecution that the early church was facing under Roman rule. But that word tribulation, if you take it a little bit further, really means a pressing, a pressing together, a um, pressure. And so it's used throughout the Bible, um, war, it's used to describe need or um, hunger. It's used to describe distress of a woman in childbirth, of persecution, of the afflictions of Christ. Any general idea of sufferings or um, struggle, this word is often used. So another book that I got to read recently, and for any of you who know me, it's gonna, none of this is my own ideas. It's all books floating around in my head that have come together. And so this book, it's called Tribe by um, Sebastian Junger. And it was written about three years ago. And he says that a lack of reliance on one another undermines authentic community. He says we become dead inside when we rely on only ourselves. He cites how both soldiers and civilians miss wartime, which sounds bizarre. And maybe some of you have experienced though, soldiers and civilians both testify to missing wartime and how that longing was so related to shared suffering. That was really surprising to me when I read that. And then it just so happened that in our staff meeting last week, we were reading scripture together and this passage from Philippians came up and Marilyn read it from the message. And so I'm gonna share it with you from the message today. It says, stand united, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message, the good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. Your courage and unity will show them what they're up against, defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. This is the part that really got my attention. Paul says there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. I was like, what? That sounds bizarre to me. But then Paul says there's also suffering for him and the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. Okay. And so as I meditated on this passage, and put it together with what Younger was describing in his book, Tribe, I see that one of the ways that suffering can be a gift is because it unifies the body. It unifies whatever community is fighting for survival together. Reliance on one another most often occurs in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering. And that reliance on each other seems to be a primary building block of true community. 
it's interesting if you think historically and going back to Junger and wartime, um, when the Germans decided that they were going to really go after London, and so we call it the German Blitz of London, they, they came in with this bombing campaign, and for almost 60 days straight, they bombed the city of London during World War II. And the um, London, not London, British government was already even thinking that this would totally demoralize their people, and, and the city would just be absolutely crushed. But it's really interesting because multiple people testify to the closeness they felt during that blitz of London as they cooperated for their survival. So interesting. And then if you turn that back on the other side, the Allied forces got together and decided they were going to not retaliate necessarily, but it was going to be a major force that was going to come into Germany and do a bombing campaign in Germany. And so um, because Dresden was a major transportation hub in Germany, the Allies went after Dresden and pretty much decimated the city. And so it's really interesting, of all the German populations interviewed during or after the war, the people of Dresden had the highest morale. That doesn't make sense when you think of it. They were the ones that were the crushed as a city, as a community, more than any other place in Germany. And they had the highest morale. We see that disasters, wartime, creates a community of sufferers. When we're forced to rely on one another, authentic community is created. So bringing that into our context, how can we learn to rely on one another with our day-to-day pressures? Because we face day-to-day pressures. I think whether we're putting a roof on our house or we need to just cope through the day-to-day of grocery shopping and child rearing and whatnot, we can rely on one another in a pretty powerful way. We need each other to encourage the patient endurance that John talks about there in verse 9. Or it's actually verse 10 that he talked. Oh no, there it is, in verse 9, patient endurance. If we call to mind the possible redeeming qualities of suffering together, relying on one another as Christ's body here on earth, we become a people who can be trusted with revelation. So the next thing that John says, he says, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. So what does it mean to be part of this kingdom? We're gonna go back to 1-1. See that word servants? I've highlighted it over there. The word servants in Greek is doulos. And the best definition I read about that word is one who gives himself up to the will of another. We are the servants that have received this revelation from Jesus. John was a servant who received this revelation from Jesus. And so being part of the kingdom of God, of the church, is willfully giving ourselves up to God's purpose and activity in this world. We see that the church has a central role in establishing the idea of thy kingdom come, 
we don't just pray that for the future, but for the here and now as well. We have the assurance of being right here, right now, within the kingdom of Christ. We're under Christ's sovereignty. We're fighting the good fight under his leadership. And that gives us hope and patience and courage for the future. We are both already part of God's kingdom and partners in how he works in the world, and yet we still wait for and anticipate the full realization of the kingdom in the future. If we move into Ephesians chapter three, we'll see a couple ways that this kingdom is present here and now in the church. Paul here, again in Ephesians, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, emphasis mine, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We see that God reveals his special wisdom through the church through the collection of his people together. And then in verses 17 through 21 of the same chapter, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. We see that all of these promises we just read about there to know the breadth and depth and height and love of Jesus Christ is revealed to us through the church. His promises are anchored in the church, in his collection of people together, in his kingdom, in this world. Those promises are realized through the church. And so when we're talking about being part of the kingdom right here, right now, that is what it means to be a people who receive revelation. So in verse 10 then, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so my question to myself was, what does it mean to be in the spirit in particular? Well, it starts by just showing up to show up before the Lord, to create the space to connect with God, to create the space to hear from God. And that's what we've done this morning. On the Lord's day is the next phrase there. And Mike explained, I believe it was two weeks ago, what it means to be here on the Lord's day, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so for John, he's there on the island of Patmos by himself, isolated. And he's still choosing to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. Reminds me a little bit of when I go on vacation. I'm not required to be at church. Let me tell you the number of times I've chosen to go to church on vacation has been zero 
So I'm preaching to myself here. But he did not have to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. He chose to be in the spirit on the Lord's day still when he was not obligated to be, when it wasn't his family's habit or tradition. Plato, whom I don't think was referring to the Holy Spirit in this case, but he says that being in the spirit means a divine release from the ordinary ways of men. And I thought that definition could apply here very well. What does it look like for us to get out of the ordinary ways of men when we show up on the Lord's day to be in the spirit? I think we could all probably answer that a little bit differently, but as I was thinking about it for me, it was to be prepared, to be attentive, to be expectant, ready to meet the Lord when I show up on Sunday mornings or whenever I'm in an alternative place to be in the spirit. For me, it means getting a good night's sleep, if at all possible. Sometimes it's not necessarily something we can always control. But if we have a choice to go to bed at a decent time, try to get a good night's sleep rather than use Saturday night as our, oh, it's a weekend, let's stay up super late. Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd here. I'm not sure. But, but just being prepared in my spirit, even Saturday night for Sunday morning, I love how John was in the spirit even when no one was looking. Despite the persecution, despite his isolation, he still recognized himself as part of a community, as part of the people of God, as part of God's chosen people to be in his presence. John was faithful to that. And so, Our recognition of our position within this tribulation, within the kingdom, enables us to endure patiently and become a people who can be trusted with revelation. Too far. Okay, so now we're going to move into Revelation chapters two and three. And if you have read ahead a little bit, you will know that Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven letters to seven churches. And in those letters to the churches, we find a consistent pattern of Jesus speaking to the church. There's a description of Jesus. There's a commendation, a rebuke, a warning or instruction, and then a promise to overcomers at the end of each of these seven letters. And so today we're going to just kind of briefly tap into three of the letters Mike is planning on spending multiple Sundays talking to us about the letters to the churches, so I'm going to not steal that from him. But we're going to look at the church of Ephesus today. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 in order to teach us that we become a people of Revelation. This is evidence that we're becoming a people of Revelation when we see a fresh love response to Christ and an outpouring of that love to others. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Revelation chapter two, or it's right there on the screen. Jesus is speaking to this church here. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The New International Commentary in the New Testament says that every virtue carries within itself seeds of its own destruction. So for example, what they mean by that is that we value being a hard worker, right? It's a good thing to be a hard worker. But what's the flip side of that? We can tend to become a workaholic. So that's what we mean when we're talking about every virtue carries a potential downside. So it seems here in Ephesus that desire for sound teaching and the resulting forthright action taken to exclude all imposters had almost created a climate of suspicion. And then that climate of suspicion prevented the church's love within the believing community from existing. Beth Moore put it this way. She says, they hated what Christ hated, but didn't love what Christ loved. So what does it look like for the church to return to her first love? We're not going to read this, and I know it's hard to see because it's small print up here, but I I have a couple chapters from Acts up here on the screen, a passage from Acts chapter two and a passage from Acts chapter four. And I think this is a really good example of what it looks like as the church to function while loving their first love, Jesus. We see that to return to our first love looks like being devoted to solid teaching and fellowship, eating together, praying together. We feel awe at miracles. We have a spirit of sharing and generosity, worshiping together in homes, sharing meals, caring for one another in extreme ways. And then I believe it is in the... It's up there. I'm not entirely sure where because I'm not reading it. But we see that according to the IV, it puts the phrase with glad and sincere hearts is towards the end of one of those passages. And, And so with glad and sincere hearts, these people of God are sharing together. They're caring for each other. They're eating together. They're worshiping together. They're praying together. And so I thought about what that looked like and The glad and sincere hearts part got my attention. Our desires are transformed when we return to the love we had at first. That's what it looks like for the people of God to have a fresh love for Christ. We're also becoming a people of revelation when we recognize the church is meant for our transformation and display a posture that seeks it. I read an article recently by Daniel Darling called Three reasons your church should not be a perfect fit for you. That um, title really got my attention because here at First Christian, we very much have the attitude that, boy, if our church is not a good fit, go find another one that is. We say that often. (laughs) And, And so I was like, huh, three reasons your church should not be a good fit for you. Okay. That's also part of, um, my passion here as a minister on staff is that I want to find everybody's perfect fit for serving and plug you in in that perfect fit way. 
And so I was confused when I saw the title, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, I get it. So Darling is making the point that church is meant for our transformation. God shapes our hearts when we face awkwardness, when we face discomfort, when we face frustration, when we face conflict. This is what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We work through it all. In our families of origin, we don't just up and leave if we're frustrated with this person. We work through it. We choose to love and continue in our relationships despite the areas in which we rub against each other. Darling also said that community is a discipline, not something that just happens. We train ourselves to wake up on Sunday mornings for something we tend to think of as optional. We engage with people who are different from us, maybe have an awkward conversation or two. Darling says, so be it. You'll have to fight for community. Dig in and get to know your body of believers. This being a people of revelation views the church as an instrument of our sanctification. It's a primary way in which God makes us more Christ-like and is willing, and we, if we're a people of revelation, adopt a posture that seeks us. So this is something that some of you will have heard already. I'm totally stealing a list by Whitney Capps called, well, the list is We Over Me. The book is called We Over Me. But she phrased it so well when we're talking about this subject. A posture that seeks transformation looks like this. When my preferences are negotiable rather than non-negotiable. When my community is built around shared faith in Christ rather than superficial similarities, like we're all moms or we're all women or we're all men. A transformational posture means that I recognize church is a family you join rather than a place you go. When I take initiative to resolve what frustrates me rather than complain someone else needs to fix it. When I choose to have the hard conversation rather than take the easy road. When I value a local church that challenges me rather than one that entertains me. When I desire my holiness more than my happiness. When I pray more than I complain about my church. When I believe the best about my brothers and sisters in Christ before assuming the worst. And when what I put into church is more important to me than what I get out of church. That's a posture that seeks transformation. Too often our fights aren't good fights. They're over preferences, over an unwillingness to die to these preferences in order to give, serve, and love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So being a people of revelation means let's fight the good fight together. Let's become a people who are given revelation in order to further the kingdom through God's love working in and through the local church. When we value the church for its transformational purpose and have a posture that seeks it, we are becoming a people of revelation. And then finally, we're going to look at the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. Because when we are becoming a people of revelation, we display complete, utter dependence on Christ. These two churches did not. So we're going to look at a quick negative example of what not to do. This is Jesus again talking to the church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. 
You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then he speaks to Laodicea. This is Jesus talking to them. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. These two churches received no, condemn, no commendation from Jesus. He has nothing good to say to them. They were the ones that seemed to have it all together from the outside looking in. They had good reputations. They appeared very stable. In our context, that means they did not have any budgetary problems. They were looked upon with um, positivity in the community. Sounds a lot like us, actually. It's kind of interesting if we look at how these churches seem to get by on their own, on their, in their own efforts. They didn't express a need for Christ. God desires them to be alive in Christ, seeking him wholeheartedly, not the things of this world. As the more I read it, I see that there's, they struggled with distraction of self-reliance, of, of um, reliance on other things and people. Laodicea in particular, they relied on their vast wealth. They relied on this medical school that they had in town. They relied on this rich, glossy black wool of the lambs they raised in their valley. And it's interesting, if you really study this, you'll see that Jesus is making these comparisons based on the historical context of Laodicea. And so if we keep going, Jesus says to Sardis, he says, wake up, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I, I think that could be Jesus talking directly to me. He says earlier, I know, I know, I know. He says with this compassion, I know the good stuff you're doing. And then he says, wake up, wake up church. And this is what he says to Laodicea. He says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the one thing that that church did not have, they had vast wealth, they had lots of banks, they had these lovely little sheep that they raised with their wool. They had a medical school. They did not have a water source in town. And so this comparison that Jesus is using, he says, you are lukewarm because they know how cruddy lukewarm water is. It was piped up from hot springs further south And so they're getting this water and it's lukewarm. Lukewarm water is no good for bathing and it's no good for drinking. It's lukewarm. And and so I'm I'm afraid that we could easily be rebuked by Jesus in the same way. We are distracted. We are busy. Even with church programs, we rely on ourselves and the apparent sustainability of our economy, of our culture. Jesus says, I know your good works. I know your deeds. I know your, the, all the good things you're doing. And then he also says, repent, return. 
wake up. He is writing to the church, to the people of God. He is asking us to return to him, to utterly depend on him for everything. And when we do this, we're becoming a people who can receive further revelation from him. So I invite you this morning to become a people of revelation. That as we are walking through revelation over these next 30 weeks, as we are reading aloud the very word of God, choose Jesus. Choose to think of yourself as this collective identity. What does it mean for you, the individual, to be you, the church? How can we open ourselves to further disclosure, light, and spiritual insight? You pray with me. God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, descend on us. May we be a people who can be trusted with revelation. Fill us afresh with your spirit, with your word. Help us to be committed to a challenge of reading your word out loud so that we can receive a blessing. I pray that that blessing would be the fullness of your church coming alive, waking up, building your kingdom in this world so that they might know you and the great love that you gave to us through your son, Jesus. In his name, amen.